Hey weirdos, we're back. I cannot express how excited I am for this episode. I think that Mothman might be one of my favorite topics. I was so excited for it right away. I have to tell my can I tell my Mothman story I was right actually away? I'm just gonna ask you when I say Mothman, what do you think? So go okay. it's all you immediately. And I asked my husband if the story was okay to tell. You know, when you have like a relative that you tell them like once, like, oh, I like frogs, and then for the rest of your life. Every holiday, every birthday, every event, you get a frog. This has happened to my husband with Mothman. Believe oh, it or Lord. not, a member of his family. And I am so sorry if you were listening to this and finding out. <laughs> I feel so bad. I really just want to read like a scary, creepy book. Like, can you recommend anything? And my husband was like, hey, I actually have the Mothman book. And... The thing is, though, he had never read it. He had been like someone gave it to him. Oh boy. He's like, hey, sure, take it and read it. Like, you know, I'm not reading it. Over the years, they randomly will text him like, oh, the Mothman, you love the Mothman. <laughs> and at first he didn't say anything. And now it's gone too far. It's too late to go back now. <laughs> that he is known by this person to be absolutely obsessed with the Mothman. Oh, my gosh. It's yeah. probably Mothman's fine badunka dunk oh yes have you have you ever seen the have you ever seen the statue after you mentioned it i <laughs> i did look up the statue so i have officially seen it that is they really got into that crack yeah, the crack is very <laughs> pronounced i don't yeah. really understand why so with that mothman is our episode today and we are going to talk about strange times and moth-shaped creatures. So this topic is so vast and crazy. To be honest, I'm not sure how any rational movie producer would have read John Keel's Mothman prophecies and been like, you know what? This has a major motion picture written all over it. And it's not often that you see one of those movies where it's like based on true events, but the real story is actually so much crazier than the actual movie. But this is one of those cases. Have you ever seen um, Mothman Prophecies, the movie? I have seen it. I, it's been it's been a while since I watched it. And I specifically, when we got to this topic, didn't look up anything about it because I want to have like a real reaction yeah. to everything. Yeah, this is way crazier. And just right off the bat, this is going to be a part one, part two, because I can't fit all of this into one episode. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of crazy. So we're going to cover some today and we're going to cover the rest next week. I'm also going to warn you, this is just more a sampling of all the crazy that took place in a West Virginian town because it's really hard to piece together a chronological story because it's just all over the place. It runs the gamut of high strangeness. So I'm just going to do my best, but this story takes us to Point Pleasant in 1966, and it's a sleepy little rural town. Now, Erin, have you ever been there? I actually kind of have. So when we were on our way to visit some of my um, hus my husband's brother and his family, we actually stopped in Point Pleasant briefly, which is even <laughs> funnier since he's so obsessed yeah, with the Mothman. Yeah, so obsessed. <laughs> He was like, we can't post a picture of us being here. No. We can't have this documented in any way. Um, <laughs> but like we just got off the exit and it was just like a factory 
and there really wasn't much there. It was okay. really small. That's kind of the impression I was getting. And in 1966, I'm guessing it was probably even more rural. As most people know from the movie, Point Pleasant is kind of centered around the Silver Bridge, which spans Route 35 across the Ohio River. And it connects Gallipolis, Ohio, Gallipolians, whatever okay. <laughs> they are yeah. called. I am sorry if I'm botching the name of your town. My apologies, but I'm pretty sure it's Gallipolis. Um, but Gallipolis is on one side and Point Pleasant is on the other. And to be honest, this story really covers the whole Ohio River Valley area and just the flap of weirdness that impacted that whole space. It's very rural. It's very hilly. And I've never personally been to West Virginia, but I lived in Kentucky for a few years. And just south of Point Pleasant is where Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky all meet up. I don't know. There is just a feeling out there. I'm not really sure how to describe it. And I don't want to offend anyone that lives out there, but Eastern Kentucky and this whole little area, it just has a vibe to it that's just a little off. Yeah. Yeah. It's different. It's a rainy November night in 1966, and an appliance salesman by the name of Woodrow Derenberger, or Woody, as he's known by, is driving home from work, and he's anxious to get home to his wife and two kids. He was in his early 50s, and he's kind of just your normal guy. This job is new for him, though, because the plant that he'd been working at actually went on strike. So... It was hard to find work when they knew that it was only temporary, but today had been a good day. He made a big sale. He sold a color TV, a $500 worth of stereo equipment, some appliances, and it was really the first big sale that he'd had. So he's driving his panel van home alongside Interstate 77, just outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia, which is near Point Pleasant, and it's about 7 p.m., so he's driving along and it's kind of a wet and dreary night and it's a dark stretch of road and he sees lights come up behind him. And you see, he was a little worried that it might be a police officer because he thought that he was speeding. So he kind of slows down and he's doing that thing where you're like, are they going to pull me over? Are they going to pull me over? And he's waiting for this car to overtake him because the lights are actually coming up pretty quick. But all of a sudden, the lights kind of rise up over the van. And they appear to like pass over the top of him. And while this is happening, he hears a noise, like a crashing sound from inside the van. And he looks up in his rearview mirror to see if he can figure out what the noise is. But it's too dark. He can't see anything. His eyes dart back down to the road. And to his amazement, this object now has landed in front of him on the road. And it's kind of a funny shape. I'll try to link to it in the show notes, like a rendering of it, but it's shaped sort of like an old kerosene lamp. So it bulges out in the center and then kind of tapers in on the sides. And it just lands on the road in front of him, blocking both lanes. So Woody slams on the brakes and he pulls over because he really doesn't have a choice. He pulls over about eight to 10 feet away from this massive thing. And the door kind of slides open and a man steps out. Now, the man appears to be tall. He's wearing a coat with his arms crossed over his chest and his hands kind of tucked up into his armpits. So sort of like Molly Shannon, if anyone. Oh, yes. Yeah. Superstar. So if anyone gets that reference, <laughs> that's sort of what this guy looked like. 
and he walks up to Woody's window and he tells him to roll down the window. But as Woody thinks about it, the guy never really said anything. It's as if the man was speaking to him without words, like through impressions directly into his brain. So now that the guy's closer, he can actually get a better look at him. He had dark skin, just like he was super tan, maybe like fell asleep in a tanning bed or something. He had dark hair that was combed straight back and he was grinning broadly. And in depictions I've seen of this guy, it's like, like a crazy grin, like, like the Joker. Yes. Yes. Like not a normal grin, kind of a creepy grin. So under his gray top coat, he had some kind of outfit that appeared to be greenish metallic in color, which sounds kind of awesome. If you ask me, I'm going to say says here when I describe this dialogue, because I'm not sure how else to explain it because okay. <laughs> he's really just like projecting the thoughts into poor Woody's brain. But for lack of a better word, he says, don't be afraid of me. We mean you no harm. I come from a country that's much less powerful than yours. And he asks Woody for his name, and Woody tells him. And this man says that his name is Cold. And he says, I sleep and breathe and bleed even as you do. So Mr. Cold kind of looks off towards the lights of the city, which is Parkersburg, as I mentioned before. And he asks what this place is. And I also need to note, he doesn't actually like point because he's doing that weird armpit thing. Okay. So he just kind of like looks over that direction. And Woody tries to explain that it's a city. And Cold says that where he comes from, they call them gatherings. And this whole time I was wondering, like, what are the cars doing that are like jammed up on the other side of the road because there's this giant lantern thing like mm -hmm. parked there. And Woody must have thought the same thing because he glances up and he notices that the spaceship, it's now taken off and it's like hovering up in the air and cars are just going underneath it. When he does this, Cold tells Woody that he must look closely at him, probably because of this whole mental telepathy speaking thing that they're doing. And the visitor asks Woody how he occupies his time during the day, which Woody takes to mean like what he does as a job. So he tells them, you know, I'm an appliance salesman. And Cold explains that he's a searcher. And then he just kind of walks away. He departs and he heads back to the spaceship and he takes off. Woody's not sure what the heck to think. So he drives home and he tells his wife about the experience who urges him to tell the police. And he does this. And he was questioned. The story actually gets out to the press. And some people actually confirmed that they saw Woody talking to a man on the side of the road that night. And there were also people on the highway who said that they saw this weird object take off. Okay, let's say you were driving home from work. And a spaceship lands in front of you. Would you tell your husband? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I would too. You know what? I don't think I'd tell him first. I think I'd call you. I think I would call you before I even got home. I know why. I'd tell You're you. right. One time I saw a man. Wait, did you do this or did I do this? One of us did this. <laughs> we saw someone dumping a bag of carrots out on the side of the road. I think it was me. I think it was you, but now I don't remember. I know. But I think the reason why we're questioning this is because I saw a man dump a bag of apples on the side oh of the road gosh. around the same time. And I think that's why we're so confused. Probably. But where I'm going with this is I immediately pulled out my phone and I'm like, I just have to tell you, I just saw this guy dumping out a bag <laughs> of carrots on the side of the road. It was really weird. And Aaron's response was, this is why we're friends. Yes. 
So you're probably, you, you are absolutely right. I would have called you. Mm-hmm. I would have called you and then I would have gotten home and I would have been like, hey, husband, I just saw a spaceship and this guy came out and he talked to me and he'd be like, that's cool. As yeah. he's watching basketball. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> November 4th rolls around and Woody's riding home with a coworker, again, just outside of Parkersburg. This weird tingly sensation in Ugh, his forehead. That gave me the chills. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, there's thoughts or something that just start appearing in his head. But they don't seem to be from Woody. It's like they're not his thoughts, but they're being projected in his head. And all of a sudden, he starts to understand it's our good friend, Mr. Cold. And he's telling Woody all this stuff about his life. He explains that he's from the planet Lanulos, which is a lot like Earth. He explains that his name is Indrid. And he talks about his family. He has a wife and they have sons. I guess the life expectancy of people from Lanulos is 125 to 175 years. Um, there's also this weird detail that they like don't wear clothes there. So Indrid warns that it'll be painful when he withdraws. And uh, suddenly Woody feels a sharp pain in his forehead and then he nearly passes out. So I'm hoping that he wasn't driving when he was. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't mention that. So I'm going to guess he was writing. Now, this starts a relationship that, according to Woody, would last the rest of his life. Woody claims that he's traveled to Lanulos with Indrid. And during these times, he feels that he must have been time traveling because he'd be gone for like days. And when he gets back, it's only a few Earth hours that have passed. According to Woody's daughter, Tanya Derenberger, Indrid and his sons continue to visit the Derenberger household throughout their lives, even to this day. Now, there's a documentary that I'm a huge fan of, and I'm probably going to mention it a lot. It's called Hellier. And they actually interview Tanya Derenberger, and they talk about Indrid Cold. There's some weird stuff that kind of crosses over in their investigation with Indrid Cold. And I'll link to this particular episode that I'm talking about in the show notes, but I really suggest watching that documentary. There's two seasons and I'm obsessed with it. I've watched them both twice. Now, before you think that Woody is just some crazy guy who wanted attention, let me tell you about Tom. Now, Tom isn't his real name. It's an alias John Keel uses in his book, but we'll just stick with it. So Tom is a college student living in Adelphi, Maryland, and he's driving home from his job as a waiter at an area restaurant when he sees this weird egg-shaped object standing on four legs. I'm understanding it to be like a lander of some sort. And he pulls over, which mistake number one, there's no way I would have been pulling over if I saw that. I would have been out of there. But he pulls over and he sees two figures come out of this egg thing. And one of them walks up to his car. And again, he's got a broad grin on his face. He has thick-soled boots, which is a detail that comes up a lot in Men in Black sightings. And again, he's really tan, just like a really tan complexion. The guy says to him, and this time I understand it that he's actually speaking. He's not doing that mental projection thing. He says, don't be afraid of me. He says that his name is Vadig. Vadig? Vadig. Okay, okay. (laughs) He asks a few questions and then he flies off and he says, I will see you in time, which oddly enough is something 
is something Woody said that Indrid would say. And it's actually, I think it's a detail that was in the Mothman movie, actually. The I'll see you in time thing. So time goes by. And this whole experience is in 1968, by the way. So it's a few years after Woody's whole experience. So Tom is at work when, to his surprise, the dig comes in. And he asks if he recognizes him. And Tom is like, why, yes, I do. (laughs) It'd be hard to not. (laughs) And after some chit-chat, he asks if he could take Tom somewhere. And Tom's like, sure. But they don't go right then. The next Sunday, on Tom's way home from work, an old Buick pulls up, kind of out of nowhere. And wouldn't you know, our old friend of the dig is inside with a friend. Well, he chose a good car. I loved my Buick. Oh, yeah, you had a Buick. (laughs) I did. Well, it seems to be like the car of choice for men in black, that and Cadillacs, only they seem to be like forever new. Interesting. We'll talk about that more. Tom and Vidig take off in a spaceship and they go to a planet called Lanulos, where the people are super tan and walk around naked. When he arrives home, he's thinking he's been gone for days, but this whole thing only took three minutes of Earth time. So John Keel, the author of Mothman Prophecies, did some extensive research on this Tom character, who, by the way, didn't want his story to be attached to the publication in any way. He didn't want any notoriety for it or anything. And John Keel could not find any connection between Woody and Tom. He also finds so many similarities between their stories, from the mannerisms of the euphonauts, as Keel calls the people that come out of the UFOs, to the details of the planet Lanulos. The story also lacks a lot of the super popular hallmarks of UFO contactee stories of the time that were in pop culture. So you'd think that if you're going to make up a story, you would use some of the details that are kind of already out there. Yeah. Like what are the chances that two people come up with weird stories that don't know each other and they both come from the planet Lanulos where the people are naked and all the kids are above average. Did Woody like tell his story by this point? He did. He did. Um, But it sounds like according to Keel and Keel was, I mean, to be honest, I think if if anyone's familiar with John Keel, there's probably opinions out there, Mm -hmm. but he does seem to attack things from a slightly skeptic perspective. Like he's cool with throwing things out Mm -hmm. and he seemed to feel that these people were not connected in any way so i'll let you guys decide for yourself but i feel like there's at least enough for a second look yeah we are several minutes in and i have not talked about mothman once so so none of these people were mothman no i was waiting for like and then the wings came out and they go away and like the majority of these next couple like this episode and the next one are probably going to be not about Mothman. I'm so confused. I know. Actually, the phenomenon that happened, it's less about Mothman and more about just a whole bunch of weird stuff. Okay. But we are going to talk about Mothman. Okay, good. Yeah. Excited for the wings. The (laughs) dusty wings. You're going to get the dusty wings and the sweet badonkadonk. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so we're back in the outskirts of Point Pleasant in 1966. It's the evening of November 14th, and a man by the name of Newell Partridge, and because I don't know if I'm pronouncing Newell right, I'm just going to call him Mr. Partridge. Mm-hmm. That's a good choice. Yes. <laughs> he was in this very rural farmhouse. He was watching TV with his wife that evening, and the, he said that he was watching some type of dog movie. So I'm assuming it was Old Yeller. 
I don't know. Seems like it would be a good choice for a dog movie in 1966. And about it was about 1030. Suddenly, the movie went out and it was replaced by a fine herringbone pattern on the TV, accompanied with a loud, high-pitched noise. Partridge described this noise almost like if you were to sing a musical scale as high up as it can go, and then it breaks off and it starts over again. So sort of like a winding up noise. And at the same time, their 110-pound German shepherd by the name of Bandit starts howling out on the porch. And I guess that wasn't super normal for him. So they kind of thought that maybe it was the sound of the TV that was freaking out the dog. So he turns it off, but the dog doesn't stop. So Mr. Partridge heads out to investigate, and he notices that Bandit is looking down towards the direction of their barn. So he shines his flashlight down in that direction, and suddenly his light picks up these huge bike reflector size red circles in the woods at the end of his property. Now, the second the light hit these whatever they were. He took them to be eyes. As soon as the light hits him, the dog takes off. I guess it was about 150 feet away. And Bandit is just off to the races now, barking and running after whatever it is. But there's something about these eyes, according to Mr. Partridge. Now, this is a guy, when you read the interview, especially the interview with Gray Barker that's in the Silver Bridge book that I'll talk about, you really get the sense of who he was. Like he seems like just your big strapping farm guy. Like I actually picture my dad who's an ex-cop and he never really got excited about things when I was growing up. Like I remember one time almost the same scenario happened except minus the red eyes. Our dog took off barking at something and my mom and I went running into the camper. Mom, I know you listen to this podcast. So I'm going to spare the story that's been told a million times. <laughs> we take off running and he just was kind of like, oh, it'll be fine. You know, and that is kind of who Mr. Partridge seems to be. But for whatever reason, he is filled with dread, just absolute dread at these eyes. And he said that they're just mesmerizing and scary. Now, if you think back to episode two, Weirdness in the Woods, that's kind of a hallmark of these strange encounters, that instant fear. Now, Mr. Partridge loved this dog, but for whatever reason, he didn't go after him. Oh, and and I was, was going to ask you that, like, if you, if it were one of your dogs, going towards something terrifying. Like I want to say I would, I would go after my, my dog is yeah. very small. She's 11 and a half pounds. <laughs> She's not killing any bear. <laughs> no, I'd be like, come on Daphne. But I don't know. I mean, so to his point, he says if it had been a bear and he had his gun with him, he would have just gone down there. I think I would have been the same way. Like if I was armed in some way, I probably okay, yeah. would have. But if it's just me, like I've often thought that we we have a puppy still. We have two dogs and one of them is a puppy and she still gets up in the middle of the night. And there's been a few times, especially recently researching this podcast where I've let her out to go potty and I thought, what if like Mothman pops up from behind <laughs> yeah, the trees? I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say. Well, Mr. Partridge did not go after the dog and he was so scared. He actually slept with a loaded gun beside him for many nights after that. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering what happened to our good boy Bandit. Oh, I am. Oh, yeah, no. It's not good. Bandit doesn't return 
Mr. Partridge heads down in the daylight to investigate, and he can see the footprints in the mud quite clearly. The tracks go down to where the red eyes were, or whatever they were, and you can see the tracks kind of circle, almost like if the dog was chasing its tail, and that's not something he commonly did. But then that's it. The dog and the tracks just disappear. Now, Mr. Partridge's story gets out to the news because he calls to check on a report of a dead dog that was part of a news story. And so he called down to the news station to get a few more details to try to understand better what this dog looked like. And this detail I thought was kind of funny. He would regularly call the news channel to get the weather report. So he'd call and just Aww. talk to like the newscaster. That's so wholesome. <laughs> I know. That would never happen now. They'd be like, why... Why are you calling? <laughs> Go look on the website. <laughs> so this brings us to our next sighting. In this sighting, a couple of kids, which makes me feel super old saying that, but it's like a couple of youths. A couple of youths. <laughs> They're like two 18-year-old just married couples who are out cruising around the abandoned TNT area. So this area is really key to our story. It's an 8,000-acre area just north of Point Pleasant. And it was known as the West Virginia Ordnance Works during World War II. And at its height, the area employed about 3,500 workers, and it manufactured 500,000 pounds of TNT a day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The space featured several buildings and domed silos that were covered with earth to blend in. So, like, if you flew over it, you wouldn't know what it was. But it's since been abandoned. It was turned over to the McClintic Wildlife Management Area. In 1983, the place was actually designated as a Superfund site because of the massive amounts of contamination on the property from its former use as a TNT factory. In fact, in 2010, there was an explosion. Of course there was. Yes. <laughs> when 20,000 pounds of unstable material that was still housed on site ignited. Oh my gosh. You can actually see photos of the space as it is today in a link that I'll post in the show notes. But there's also an episode of, again, Hellier, my favorite documentary, where they go into the silos and conduct an investigation. So it's kind of interesting to see the inside of it. There's a lot of graffiti. They're kind of echoey. They're just, it's just a really creepy space. So this kind of became a hangout area for teens. And this is where Roger and Linda Scarberry, accompanied by their friends, Steve and Mary Millette, took their 57 Chevy out to cruise around the evening of November 15th, 1966. So they pulled up near the old armory powerhouse, which is now a rundown and forgotten building with broken windows. And it was about 11.30 p.m. Steve spots something and he was in the back seat and he sees these bright red eyes staring at him. And he said it's almost as if they were looking inside him, maybe even through him, it seemed. And they were hypnotic. It made it almost impossible to look away. They were terrified, but it's like the eyes just kept them stuck there. Like Roger just could not drive away. Eventually, he gets his wits about him and he's able to he's able to start driving away. But before he rolls away, he is able to make out a tall, shadowy body with the wings folded around it. Wings. Yes. Wings, the wings. <laughs> when the car lights shone on this thing, it tried to get away from the lights. So they kind of get the 
idea that it is afraid of the light. And I don't know, this detail just really freaks me out. So he unfolds his wings and he's running in this weird fashion with the wings outstretched. And it's like it was trying to find like a balancing point between them. And he said that it it was running like a crippled chicken. Oh. Which, ugh. I don't know. That just <laughs> grosses me out. <laughs> so the creature disappeared around a building and Steve, who got the best look at it, said that it reminded him of something from the Bible that he'd seen when he was a kid, like a fallen angel or something like that. Something evil. They tried to drive off, but suddenly the engine dies, which that's it. I'm dead. I just, I would yeah. have been dead. So they're frantically trying to get this car started and they're grinding at the starter and it overturns once, but then that's it. The battery's dead. So Steve suggests that they try pushing it because they were on a bit of a hill. So they figured that if they could push it, they could get it going. So now this means someone needs to get out of the car, which again, nope. Sorry, Aaron. If we are ever in this situation, I am not the get out of the car and push kind of friend. Neither am I. We will curl up fetal position wait for the thing to go away yeah or yeah. just let it let it get us yes yeah i'd probably be dead already at this point <laughs> i would have gone into cardiac arrest and you would have been like it was just a bike reflector a yeah. red bike reflector and i'd be like ah <laughs> so they finally actually do get the car running and they start to take off and they're kind of discussing what they saw like was it a bird no it was six to seven feet tall they turn to the main highway and they're a little less freaked out now. And they're like, did you see those legs? Yes, they were super muscular. What about the eyes? They said that they were about two inches in diameter and probably six to eight inches apart. So it must have been huge. But suddenly their conversation is interrupted because it's back. They see it take off straight up off the ground like a rocket, not like a bird that sort of like runs and then takes off. It's like it just went shoop, straight up in the air. And there was no visible means of propulsion. And it starts taking off after the car and keeping up with it. So in addition to knowing this thing was after them, they could feel it. Like there was this immense feeling of overpowering fear. When the creature would dip behind a tree or a cloud, they could still feel it there. They were going about 100 miles per hour, and this thing was still keeping up with them. They could hear the wings hitting the top of the car as it dove towards them. And I guess it even left scratch marks on top of the oh car. Oh, gosh. As they got closer to the lights of the city, the winged creature eventually flew off, and the group pulled into the local Dairyland parking lot, a popular hangout for Point Pleasant hoodlums. Oh I'm I'm sorry, but <laughs> B's dog just <laughs> went outside oh and we're in the basement mm -hmm. and I saw it walk past the window and I feel like <laughs> I jumped a freaking foot in the air. <laughs> uh, one night I was down here and it was dark and she was outside and I didn't know it. She's a chocolate lab, so she blends into the dark and she jumped at the window and I nearly died. It was terrifying. <laughs> So we're back at the local Dairyland parking lot and, and they started talking about the encounter. But the weird thing is as terrified as they all were, they wanted to go back. They explained it, that this creature was both repelling and fascinating, frightening and compelling at the same time, both real and unreal. So they can't really explain it, but they're drawn back for a second look. So they head back in. And at this moment, I'm reading the Gray Barker's book, 
um, called Sil- Silver Bridge. And I'm like yelling at the pages because it's like one of those bad horror movies where you're like, why are you doing this? Why are you going back? They sneak into a spot called Lewis's Gate, which is an old like gate entry to an old farmhouse that's no longer there. And to my understanding, it was out by the TNT area. And it was kind of like a lover's lane type area where a car could pull up and basically be hidden from view. And I know we, Erin, did you have places like that back where you were in high school? No? I mean, I didn't go to them because I was so rude. <laughs> yeah, we definitely did. Ours was called a rubber road because people would do burnouts on the road. And that's where everybody went to fight, drink, smoke, fight. Yeah, fight. I've been. Didn't, didn't you have like those like, like the, checkered flags? Yes, the woman would stand in the middle. And yes, like, that was me. No. Yes. <laughs> no, but I definitely went to quite a few fights there. Were the fights about, like, were they just like, oh, let's get together and fight? Yeah. Or were they just like, okay, you did me wrong? No, let's they'd be do- like, after school at Rubber Road, you know, and then everybody go. So anywho, they're just about to turn into this space when they see a figure on the side of the road. And it was hard to tell at first, but Roger shines the flashlight on it. And there's this like big thing on the side of the road. And they realize it's a large dog. Of course, the girls in the car are like, go get a vet, go save it, which totally would have been me. But the guys are like, this thing is not with us anymore. This dog is beyond saving. So they are having this discussion when all of a sudden from behind a tree, they see it. The Mothman steps out into the lights of the car and it starts running through a field with its crippled chicken running that it does. And this time enough is enough. They leave the area and they go straight to the police station to give an account of what they've seen. And the cops actually believe them. They accompany them back to the Lewis Gate area to check on the dog, which it's now gone. There's nothing there. There was no sign that a dog had ever been there. There's no blood. There's nothing. So the police pull into the TNT area and they kind of hide out to see if they can spot whatever this is. But as they're sitting there, the radio in the police car starts to go haywire. The dispatcher's voice is completely blotted out by this high-pitched noise, like a record playing really fast but without any discernible speak. So it's like a sped up record. The noise eventually stopped. The police end up abandoning the search without any sighting of the Mothman, but the account makes it into the news. And I'll link to a page that I found that has a bunch of news articles from the timeline, which are, they're just kind of interesting to look at. There's pictures. But that is why our friend, Mr. Partridge, called the news station to inquire about the dead dog because this was in the news. So we never find out if that dog was bandit or not. But it's not the last that we hear of, of this Mothman fellow. So the next night... Mrs. Thomas is at her home near the TNT area, and Catherine Wamsley and Marcella Bennett dropped in for a visit. Now, Marcella had just had a baby, and she knew how much Mrs. Thomas loved babies, so she brought her over, and they had a nice little visit. Mrs. Thomas held the three-year-old named Tina in her little pink dress on her lap, and as they wrapped up the visit, Marcella and Catherine turned to leave, and Mrs. Thomas is just hit with this intense feeling of foreboding. She had heard the accounts about Mothman from the Scarberries and the Millettes. It was on the news. And right before she shut the door, something in her head just kept saying, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. 
she sees out her friends and she latches the hook on the door and she all of a sudden hears an ear piercing scream. She opens the door to see Marcella had dropped the baby and in fact kind of like fell over the top of it. So the baby's crying. Marcella and Catherine are screaming and Mrs. Thomas is like, what is happening? It's just utter chaos. She takes in the scene and she sees it. The red eyes from across the street in the woods. In fact, a few nights prior, she had a vision about these same eyes during her nightly prayer. She had taken it as an omen that something bad was about to happen. In her vision, it started out as like a plane crash, but then it moved into this huge bird that was plunging towards her and the eyes were red and they held her in a trance while she heard screaming all around her. And this is kind of what's happening right now. So she ushers the two screaming women in and the crying baby back into the house. And Marcella kind of sits down on a chair and settles down enough so that she can tell what happened. And as she's walking out the door, this giant bird man creature like fell out of the sky. And she said like a sack of sand. Hmm. So which I thought was odd, but like it, it sounds like it just went like thud and just fell right in front of her which would be absolutely terrifying. Did I ever tell you that I had a I was driving one day and I had a bird die from the <gasps> sky and fall directly in front of my car? Oh my gosh. I was going down like this back road in Michigan where mm -hmm. I used to live and all of a sudden this thing falls from the sky right in front of me and I kind of like like looked it was it almost hit the hood of my car. Oh my gosh. And yeah, it was just a bird that just died dead. Yeah. Ugh. So I feel like that was a small bird and that freaked me out yeah. enough. It, this would be so scary. Like she's just walking out the door and all of a sudden just like swoop and it just lands there. And the glowing red eyes just kind of like entranced her. And it was making this flapping and gurgling sound as it stands up because it sounds like it kind of like fell and then it stood up and unfurled its wings. She was so transfixed on this thing that she dropped her baby. So that happened. And the baby was fine, I guess. It was bundled up so tightly that nothing really happened to it. But it probably grew up with major trust issues. Yeah. But physically, Tina was fine. Our favorite dude, John Keel, enters the chat now. Now, John Keel is a major character in UFO literature, but more so in just like overall high strangeness. And as news of these sightings pick up, two UFO researchers descend upon Point Pleasant to interview witnesses and to take a stab at trying to figure out what was happening. Gray Barker is the first. He compiled his research into a self-published a self-published book called The Silver Bridge. The other is John Keel, who is by far the more better known of the two. And I'm going to talk about Keel a little bit more because he is so interwoven into the story really as much as Mothman is. I could probably and probably will do an episode on just him. So Keel heads down to Point Pleasant and he meets with Mary Heyer. And she's like a local reporter that everyone knows. If you watch the movie, she's actually like the police officer. I think Laura Lenny. Is it like okay. the actress's name? That's who she plays. Keel heads down to Point Pleasant and he meets right away with Mary's niece and her name is Connie Carpenter. And he can tell right away something happened to this girl. Her eyes are so swollen. They're nearly swollen shut and they're bright red. Keel refers to this as conjunctivitis, 
or eye burn. And he claims that it's been recorded along with strange sunburns in thousands of UFO cases. And if you think back again to our Weirdness in the Woods episode, this happened to Terry Lovelace. Hmm. So according to Connie, she was driving home from church around 1030 a.m. on Sunday, November 27th. She's about 18 years old. She was passing a golf course in Mason County, just outside of New Haven, West Virginia, which is about 25 minutes away from Point Pleasant. When all of a sudden, out of the corner of her eye, she sees this gray figure in the golf course. Now, it's the end of November, so no one was out there golfing or anything. And regardless, this figure was huge. It was way too big to be a person. It had these glowing red eyes that produced, again, that same hypnotic effect on poor Connie. And she slowed down, like, despite herself, because she was just so, like, mesmerized by this thing. And it opened up its huge wings. Its wings spanned about 10 feet, and then it took off, straight up off the ground like a rocket, and headed straight towards Connie's car. Still with those red eyes focused on her, it swooped towards the car, and then it continued on as she sped away as fast as she could. So, mesmerizing. The fear, all of a sudden, just like a gripping sense of fear. But then this detail about it, it takes off up in the air, not like it's flapping its wings, taking off like a bird. It's more like it just goes and goes up in the air. Some people Mm. even say like it goes up like a helicopter. Yeah, I know. I was like, that detail is really going to freak out, Erin. My biggest fear is it's a helicopter. I'm freaking terrified of helicopters. I don't know why. They freak me out. But one of the things that I find so strange about that detail is why does it even have the wings? Like, it doesn't seem like they're actually functional. It's not like anyone's like, oh, I see it flapping. Um, It seems like they just kind of go and take off. So Mm. it's strange. I get the feeling that it's less of like a real flesh and blood creature Mm -hmm. and more like an entity of some type. All these Mothman sightings are obviously crazy, and the news is really getting out about them far beyond Point Pleasant. But what is even more strange is what happens after this. The word has gotten out far beyond Point Pleasant, perhaps maybe even to people that are otherworldly. The sightings do continue, but something else starts to happen to those who've seen the weird creature. So poor Connie, who we had just talked about, was in her home in New Haven, West Virginia, when she hears a knock on the door. She looks out the window and she sees this large white car with a loud muffler on it. And the guy at the door was strange. He introduced himself as a friend of Mary Hires, which again is Connie's aunt. There was just something about him. His demeanor was super odd. He asks really disjointed questions and everyone in the house is just super weirded out by him. He introduced himself as Jack Brown, and it became pretty obvious that he wasn't interested in Mothman really at all, like her sighting. He was more interested in Mary Heyer and John Keel, the UFO investigator. One of the questions he asks is, what would Mary Heyer do if someone were to stop her from writing about UFOs? The guy asks. And Connie replies, she'd probably tell them to drop dead. And the rest of the guy's questions were either too stupid or too unintelligible to even be noted. He would only speak or respond to questions if you were looking like right into his somewhat hypnotic dark eyes. And he had really long fingers and odd shaped ears. And they didn't really know how to describe what was odd about the ears, but they just didn't seem right. Hmm. 
Eventually, he wrapped up his convoluted line of questioning and he drove off into the night. Connie would also commonly hear loud beeping sounds coming from outside her bedroom window. And a year following the sighting, someone actually tried to kidnap her. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now, we don't know if it was just bad luck or if it was connected to the phenomena, but Basically, she was walking to school one day and this big black car pulls up next to her. The guy asks for directions and he seems harmless enough. He was in his early 20s and again, very suntanned, which is becoming a theme here. This car seems old. She identified it as a 1949 Buick, but it's like brand new. Another Buick. Another Buick. And it's brand new, which is another thing that you hear about in Men in Black sightings, like these impossibly spanking new cars that are several decades old at this point. Connie comes up to the guy to give the directions that he's asking for, and he grabs her by the arm as she approaches. Struggle takes place, but she is she does manage to slip away, and she runs home and locks the door. At about 3 p.m., she hears a knock on the door, and of course she doesn't answer it. She did look out the window, though, and there was no car outside. She didn't see anyone around. But as she's looking out the window, she sees a slip of paper slide under the door, and it says, be careful, girl. I can still get you. Oh, my gosh. Chills. I would move. I would move across the country. Yeah. I don't know if she went to the police. There wasn't really any follow-up on this, which, as if what she went through wasn't enough, you know? You know what also surprises me? So this is through the front door of her home. Mm -hmm. Like, my doors are so sealed, you would not be able to slip a piece of paper under my door. Oh, mine you could. Mine you could. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can, like, see daylight out of (laughs) one of our doors. It's ridiculous. And I don't live in an old house, I should mention. I live in an old house. Yeah. My gosh. The quality ain't what it used to be. (laughs) We're actually thinking about doing... um, an Estes method at Aaron's house on an upcoming, probably not an episode, probably something on our um, social media channels. So you'll have to take a look-see at that. Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't just Connie. The Scarberries had their own occurrences following their experience with Mothman. Now, remember, the Scarberries were the the two couples, the Scarberries and the Millettes, that were driving around the TNT area. Shortly after their sighting, they would start hearing these weird sounds like beeps and garbled noises, almost like a sped up record, similar to the noises that the police officer heard coming through his police radio at the TNT area when he drove out to investigate the sighting. It was so distressing that they actually moved out of the trailer they were living in at the time and into the home of Linda's parents, which At the age of 18, as a new married couple, it must have been pretty scary to want to move back in Mm -hmm. with your parents. (laughs) So it was at this new home that Linda was there one day alone and a man knocked at her door. She opened it and the guy's like, I would like to take a photo of your family. A few months later, that same, that Jack Brown character appeared at the Scarberry home now this time, again, in the same white car. At this point, the Scarberries were pretty well known because of their sighting. It had gotten out to the news and everybody just kind of ran with this whole Mothman thing. So it wasn't totally odd for someone to come over and ask to interview them. But this guy, who announced himself as a friend of Mary Heyer and John Keel and Gray Barker, which were the two UFO investigators that were in Point Pleasant. So she let him in 
And he produced this huge tape recorder, like this giant tape recorder, and he slings it up onto the kitchen table. But it became really obvious that he didn't know how to use it. His questions were just bizarre. They were vague and they were confusing. And he didn't really seem to care about the Mothman sighting at all or know how much or even really know much about it. He was most interested, again, in Keel and Mary Heyer and what they thought that Mary Heyer would do if someone tried to stop her from reporting on flying saucers. Some friends dropped by and Jack Brown was still there. So he introduces himself by extending his like thumb and forefingers out into a handshake, which to me, it's like, pew, pew, you know, like it looks like you're doing like the shooter McGavin guns, you know, <laughs> that would make me so uncomfortable I know. to shake someone's hand like that. I'm going to do that to everybody now. And so I'd like to know what the friends did, you know, with this extended shooter McGavin hand, because like, what do you just shake like the index fingers or I feel like you'd, you'd have to also put out two fingers and shake them. Yeah. Oh yeah. You'd probably, you probably would do yeah. that. So you, you can't see it, but Erin and I are actually doing this right now. So <laughs> we'll put it on our social media. You'll have to see it. So anyway, so he also says that he's from Cambridge, Ohio, but there was a one of the people in the group that was there was from a neighboring town. And when he starts asking him questions, the guy didn't even know where Cambridge, Ohio was. <laughs> so it, it it was just very strange. And he had that same hypnotic gaze during the conversation that really just creeped everyone out. And I know that would be hard for me. I struggle with eye contact sometimes. Like even now that we're talking about it, I feel like I can't make eye contact with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to not look at you. <laughs> So I would really struggle with this guy. But do you know how long he stayed there? Five hours. He stayed there for five hours and he finally leaves at around 11 p.m. So Woody Derenberger, again, the guy that met our friend Indrid Cold, he had his own visitors drop by the appliance store where he worked. The men were short, stocky, dressed in dark suits, and again, super tan. And I should clarify, he's not saying that these men are black. He's saying that they're just like really tan. Sometimes they describe it as very like olive skin or ruddy complexion, which I don't really know what a ruddy complexion means. But I'll have to Google that. I'm not sure. I've tried Googling it actually, and I've never felt like I got a clear answer. I actually do a lot of genealogy and um, one of my ancestors' complexion was described as ruddy. And so I was trying to understand. But that's something that is pretty much in all these men in black sightings is that ruddy complexion. He, these two people walk up to Woody at work and they say, we think you know who we are and we, we advise you to forget about everything you've seen. And that's it. They turn around and they leave. These weird drop-ins followed Woody throughout his life. They would move, like they actually moved homes and they would still receive the same weird phone calls. They'd see black cars outside their home with men in dark suits just watching them. Woody actually eventually goes on to write a book about his experiences. And according to his book, he and his wife both received warnings urging him to stop. They would threaten Woody's friends. His home was frequently ransacked despite locking the doors. His tape recorder would be broken and valuable things would be missing. Now, Mary Heyer, again, the town reporter, she started to receive reports of weird people harassing citizens all over Point Pleasant. 
Oddly tall and tan magazine salesmen would show up super late at night. An unemployment office worker who helped a super odd stranger dressed in black with funny looking eyes. A lot of these people, they would say that they had like bulging eyes that just didn't seem to fit. Mary also started to have telephone problems. I gotcha. There was also this account of these super odd men coming into Mary Heyer's office asking what she would do if she was asked to not publish a UFO report. Mary started having telephone issues. She would get funny sounding beeps and odd people calling. She even unlisted her number, but the problem still persisted. In fact, people all over Point Pleasant started having this problem. There was one lady that John Keel interviewed who said every night at five, her phone would ring and a man would speak super fast in a language that sounded sort of like it could have been Spanish, but it wasn't. And Keel actually investigated the woman's phone. He took it completely apart and inside he found a piece of wood. It was about the size of a matchstick and sharpened to a point and then it was covered in something that looked like graphite. So that was inside like the earpiece to her phone, which makes no sense. Televisions, phones, even cars seem to all be on the fritz all over Point Pleasant. But there seemed to be one phenomenon that coincided with all these things happening, and it came from above. And this part of the story will continue next week. We have so much more to cover. Aliens, UFOs, weird prophecies about the bridge, and I can't wait to share it with you. So the two main sources I used for this episode and the next episode too are Gray Barker's The Silver Bridge and John Keel's Mothman Prophecy. Both are excellent reads. Gray Barker's book is more of a narrative. It's like he got to know all the people that he interviewed better and it's more like a story. John Keel's book is, it's all over the place, but it's packed with tons of craziness from all over the country, in fact, the world. And he does a really great job of collecting data and then trying to tie it into similar reports occurring the same time all over the place to try to find some type of meaning. And I have not even like scratched the surface of the this book. It was really hard to decide what accounts I wanted to share with you and what accounts that I just, I couldn't say, okay, here's 30 Mothman sightings, or this is 30 men in black sightings. You know, I just tried to find some that kind of stuck out. I really, really, really recommend checking out that book. And if this is something you're interested in, like the topic of high strangeness and weirdness, it's really like one of those books that you, you got to read. So I'll link to all this in the show notes, including um, some of those other things that I mentioned, like the newspaper clippings and um, Hellier. I also want to let you know that we have been working on merch and we are going to drop it in a new website, which is almost up and running. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're really excited to share that. We have pet stuff, kid stuff, human stuff, drinking stuff. <laughs> you are going to love it. And I can't wait to share it with you guys. So be sure to follow us on our socials at Mysteriously Eclectic Pod on TikTok and at Mysteriously Eclectic Podcast on Instagram for all the updates. And as always, if you like what you hear, like our page, follow our podcast, give us a good rating and tell your friends. It helps us to keep going. Thanks for listening. And we can't wait to catch up with you next week. Mm -hmm.